right, I'm going to explain some stuff today uh, that is a little complicated and can be a little bit involved and a little confusing potentially. So I hope and have been praying that I would have wisdom on how to explain it well and simply without you know, dumbing it down, right? To explain it well, but without dumbing it down. That's my goal. You know, they tell me that the internet is where religion goes to die. Have you heard that before? I've heard that before because I've spent a lot of time dealing with skeptics and non-believers and people who are on the fence on the internet. They tell me the internet is where religion goes to die, but they also tell me that the internet's full of low-quality research and poor argumentation. Yep. <laughs> that's, that's what I want to say. And... Let's talk about a, a specific example of this. Um, if you can successfully refute the resurrection of Jesus, like you you have refuted Christianity. Like Christianity literally does stand or fall in the resurrection of Christ. This historical claim that he bodily rose from the dead, that is so central that there just is no true Christianity apart from that claim, right? There's there's all sorts of peripheral things about Christianity that, that you might say, okay, well, this, I, I've changed my mind on this. I've changed my mind on that, but not the resurrection, man. You can't change your mind on this. So the internet tells me, the internet, and they tell me this with scholarly support, sort of, at least from some scholars, maybe a minority, uh, that Jesus was never buried and that Joseph of Arimathea in Mark, the gospel of Mark, where we're, we're reading right now, that this, this is a legend, that he never took the body of Jesus and put him in a tomb. The argument in short, their argument, is that both of these things are historically unlikely, so unlikely that the stories you read about in the gospels are inventions, they're made up. Now, this goes completely against the actual historical evidence. Like the evidence strongly supports the burial of Jesus, which again lends support to the empty tomb. Well, it, it supports the burial and the empty tomb, which lends support to the resurrection of Christ, because when you put all the facts together, it's the most reasonable explanation of the um, evidence. But what I'm going to do right now is we're going to read here in Mark chapter 15, because this is our verse by verse study going through the whole gospel of Mark. I cover, you know, I stop and cover things like apologetics, like today, theology, or controversial topics and challenging questions and all that sort of thing to the best of my ability anyhow. So we're going to be today reading in Mark 15 verses 42 through 46. This is the story they say is legendary. Get it in your head and then we're going to talk about the argument against it coming from um, scholars like Dr. Bart Ehrman. And, and the reason, again, why I use his stuff is because all the skeptics I deal with online largely quote his material on this particular topic. And so we're going to look at that stuff and responses from scholars such as Dr. Craig Evans. All right, here we go. Jesus is buried. That's the title, at least here in the, in the, the NASB. Now, Mark 15:42. let's read the passage. Again, they say all of this is made up and we'll talk about why and why I believe they're wrong. Why, if you're a skeptic, I want you to, because of the evidence, I want you to rethink your position on the empty tomb if you have taken a position that it, it didn't happen. All right, verse 42, when evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So Jesus has already died. And Joseph asks, he's on the cross though, you know, can I take him down? Can I put him in a tomb? Verse 44, Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time and summoning the centurion, he he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Remember the process here, okay? Forgive me for interrupting the passages I usually read straight through, but remember the process. He wants, he, you know, the, to bury Jesus. He goes to Pilate and he asks. Pilate confirms with the centurion to make sure that Jesus is dead. And then 
Ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Remember the process, that will be important later. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in a linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, okay, well, then we get to the witnesses, the women witnesses. I actually dealt with that last time, two weeks ago from today. I dealt with that. So let's talk now about this story. Um, why would, say, scholars like Dr. Bart Ehrman be against this happening? And here's the case. Basically, they say Romans, as a rule, in the Roman Empire, and the Romans were the ones who were controlling the Jews at the time. The Jews were like, were, were sub subjected, their government was subjected to Roman rule. So they had a government, but it had limits. And the um, the Romans did not allow for crucified people to be buried at all. Like there was no burial for crucified people. They, they didn't get buried. They were left on the, the cross. And there, there they stood while birds and dogs came and pecked away at their flesh and, and disfigured them. Or, you know, then probably days later, not the night of the crucifixion, but days later when they finally took him down off the cross, they weren't put into like proper burial like a tomb they were just tossed into like a, a dirt pit and just just like a mass grave and just covered with with dirt um making it hard to identify the, the location where jesus had been raised so therefore they say the empty tomb is only evidence of a legend right because it goes it goes contrary to what would have happened historically and therefore it's a legend so this is actually talked about in Bart Ehrman's book, and you could you could get this, although I don't recommend it. I think it's very misleading. But you could get Bart Ehrman's book, which is How Jesus Became God. And he has a chapter in this book, which he talks about. Bart Ehrman, uh, and I don't mean any disrespect to him personally, okay? I, I'm just trying to speak factual. I'm try, trying to talk about motives and all that. But he um, he's changed. He thought Jesus had, he rejected the resurrection, but he thought the burial was real. And then he changed his opinion on this. And this book, he writes why he changed his opinion. And he deals with claims he deals with the evidence that would you know say otherwise so in his book dr bart Ehrman, he says and i quote this is on page 151 uh, and i have links below to tons of resources articles and stuff like that down below i should say tons there's tons of content in the few links that are there and um, bart Ehrman says no one could have discovered that jesus was no longer in his tomb if he'd never been buried in a tomb in the first place and so you realize this is He's going to argue that the the tomb itself is not historical. Therefore, the stories about discovering Jesus' tomb empty are not historical. Therefore, it takes away a piece of evidence supporting the resurrection. At least that's how most of us are going to understand the implications of that. Again, in his same book on page 160, Ehrman says the following. Listen carefully. I want to hear his arguments. And then we're going to work through them because they're demonstrably problematic. And I want you to know. Because listen, how many times... Have you heard confident statements about historical facts and how they just they, they, they refute Christianity? Okay, this couldn't be the case because blah, blah, blah. Um, but how often are, do you actually spend, you know, 40, 50 hours researching the topic to go deep and find out and confirm if those things are true? Well, probably not very often. That's my job. <laughs> so, so here we go. Uh, Ehrman says, and I quote from page 160 on his book, in his book, In sum, the common Roman practice was to allow the bodies of crucified people to decompose on the cross and be attacked by scavengers as part of the disincentive for crime. I have, and listen to this, I have not run across any contrary indications in any ancient source. So, end quote or pause quote, I'll read more in a sec. Ehrman's saying like, not only is that the common practice, I've, I've never seen any indication in any source of any kind that would imply anything different than that. 
okay, well, this is going to be a really problematic quote as we show you a bunch of sources that imply problems with that. So um, continuing his quote, he says, it is always possible that an exception was made, of course, but it must be remembered that the Christian storytellers who indicated that Jesus was an exception to the rule had an extremely compelling reason to do so. If Jesus had not been buried, his tomb could not be declared empty. So they invented the story. Uh, he's, he's now kind of going into sort of mind reading about why it, fictitious people, we don't know of who these Christian storytellers are, actual like real people with names, but these, these storytellers who he sees as happening in the first century, they invented the story and then they kind of about uh, discovering Jesus' tomb empty, then they had to make up a story about a burial to back it up. Um, okay, so... He's basically saying it's more likely that the empty tomb story led to a burial story or that the burial and empty tomb are just part of then that the burial and empty tomb are just part of what actually happened. That's, that's his claim. Another quote from his book, page 160 and 161, he says, and I quote, and we are told by the Roman historian Tacitus of a man who committed suicide to avoid being executed by the state. Now he's going to talk about a historical source. Since anyone who was legally condemned and executed forfeited his estate and was debarred from burial. And that's in Annals 629. So basically what Ehrman does then at this point in his argument in his book is he's going to offer a number of sources. And they are they're real sources, okay? I'm not, I'm not disputing any of these sources. Where they say things like this. Where a person who um, dies of execution is not allowed to be uh, buried properly. Given a proper burial. Now that's interesting. So that would seem to be the whole story then. You'd say lots of sources confirm it. We have Roman sources from around the empire that suggest that crucifixion equals you don't get buried. But what, what Bart Ehrman has done is he's left out a bunch of other sources that fill in a larger picture. So we're going to talk about this. See, a majority of scholars, let me, and let me mention this too, because I know, I know, look, some of you are coming to this video as the skeptics who have very little trust for Mike Winger. <laughs> You're like, he's just an apologist. And you, you think things like, oh, he just, he's just doing this to make money. Like, it's all just a money-making scheme and that sort of thing. And you, you have a very low opinion of me, perhaps. But what I'm going to suggest is that um, consider the fact that what I'm sharing here is representing the majority of scholars. And Bart Ehrman represents the minority in this case. And I'm not going to lean on my own stuff here. I have lots of research to present to you from qualified scholars in their fields. And I'd like for you to consider it, even if you don't trust me. I'm not offended by that. I really don't care. <laughs> but I'd love for you to consider the ideas that I think are true and should impact your life and maybe maybe save you. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I want you to be saved. All right, so um, here's my response so far. The majority of scholars do accept this is true, just saying that so that people don't think I'm trying to present some fringe view. If I present a minority opinion, I always tell you guys this is not the majority opinion. Um, Bart Ehrman never tells his readers here that he's in the minority in this area, at least not that I'm aware of. I've never seen him mention that in his writings. But the first thing you need to know is that though there are plenty of Roman sources that say that um, crucifixion, no burial, at least in individual cases, or at least in certain locations, you need to know that Rome was very big. Rome was a very big place, and what's true in one time and one place in Rome may not be true in all times and all places in Rome. An example could be the U.S. We're, we're not even two nations, right? We're one nation, but across the nation we have different laws that play out in different ways. Like, say, take, take uh, walking around with an um, open or concealed carry weapon on your person. Okay, in California, 
especially like where I live, like LA County, I, that is not going to be very easy to get a permit to do that. Other people, you don't, other states, you don't even need a permit to do it because it's just state, at least that's how I understand it. But that's state by state. My example is it's the laws change. So I could distort your understanding of America by quoting the laws from only one region or from certain regions and ignoring the laws from other regions and then make you think that it's a, you know, nationwide law about weapons when it's not. The Roman government had an even more divided country than America does as far as state by state. They were one giant Roman government with a bunch of different like sort of vassal countries that were submitted to them like Judea, right? Like ancient Israel. And the laws in one place are not the same as the laws in all places. So let's talk a little bit more about a fuller picture of what Rome would do with people who were crucified. And the first quote I'll give you is from Flaccus 83. You can look this up on your own if you like. F-L-A-C-C-U-S. That's the name of the book. Flaccus 83. Um, this is uh, the author's Philo, ancient first century dude. And he says, about uh, a similar event happening in Egypt. This happened... Um, before the time, just before the time of Christ, I believe. And here is the quote. He, he wants to he wants to rip on this one guy, Flaccus. Philo hates this guy, Flaccus. He wants to build a case for why he was basically a bad ruler in Egypt. But this was Egypt under Rome. So um, he says, I've known instances before now, before now, of men who have been crucified when this festival and holiday was at hand, being taken down and given up to their relations in order to receive the honors of sepulture or to be buried properly. And to enjoy such observances as are due the dead. For it is for it used to be considered that even the dead ought to derive some enjoyment from the natal festival of a good emperor or the emperor's birthday. And also the sacred character of the festival ought to be regarded. Now, this is one quote Ehrman does respond to. Um, I can't remember if it was in his book or on his blog because I did try to look up his responses here. Um, I like, you know, you ever like doing that? You want to hear both sides and keep chasing an argument down. So Dr. Ehrman says that this was, this doesn't count because it was on the emperor's birthday. Sure, they allowed some people to be, to be who were, say, crucified to be taken down and buried right away, um, not left to hang and then put and then debarred from burial. But he says this was the emperor's birthday. It was not a Jewish festival, so it doesn't mean anything, but that the standard practice was to refuse burial to crucified victims. So he's kind of suggests that this quote actually confirms his opinion. That seems strange. Like that, the logic of that seems strange, that the exception to a rule because of because of a, a birthday festival, but still a festival that the community cared about, that 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 proves there were no other exceptions to the rule. That seems strange. Um, but the scholar Dr. Craig Evans, who's done great work on this, he points out that Philo is building a case against Flaccus, the governor he hates. Right? He thinks he's lousy, and this example only makes sense if Philo can appeal to a general Roman practice that on special occasions burial was allowed. See, Flaccus didn't allow the burial of these people during this festival. So it's weird to think that you would rule out that being the kind of courtesy that an emperor or a, a, a governor would allow for different festivals that were respected by the people. That just seems strange. But it gets a lot better than this. The Digesta, which is a summary of Roman law from about 500 AD, this is Roman law, okay, not Jewish law. We know what the Jews would want to do. I'll talk more about that later. We know what the Jews would want to do with a crucified victim. They would want to bury them right away. I'll talk more about that in a bit. But the Digesta, which is a summary of Roman law from about 500 AD, it says the following and its rules. We're going to analyze this, this quote a little bit. We're going to get a little heady today. We're going to get a little into the, into, the, into the weeds a bit with some of this stuff, but it just has to be that way because 
Um, that's the kind of content I want to make. <laughs> and so that's what you're here for, I hope. But here's the details. It says, the bodies of those who were condemned to death should not be refused their relatives. That quote means that you, when the relatives come and request to bury the body, you give them the body. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, let's read on. There's a lot more we should talk about here. And the divine Augustus, in the 10th book of his life, said that this rule had been observed. So, okay, Augustus, who was a previous Roman ruler, and we're, we're talking, he's like, rules until 14 AD. And in the 10th book of his life, which was the last book that he had come out. So, right before, I mean, during the life of Jesus, he writes this book. And the book has a rule that says, don't refuse the condemned. Don't refuse to give their bodies to their families for burial. Let me read on. At the present, the bodies of those who have been punished are only buried when this has been requested and permission granted. Remember when Joseph, Joseph went to Pilate to request and then got permission? And sometimes it is not permitted, especially where persons have been convicted of high treason. Even the bodies of those who have been sentenced to be burned can be claimed in order that the bones and ashes after being collected may be buried. So um, a couple things. We, we have Augustus writing in you know, 14 or 10 AD, like right before he dies, he has a general rule about actually allowing the burial of crucified people. Hmm, interesting. And 500 years later, they appeal back to it as being a standard. So you'd expect through hundreds of years that it was allowed. Um, now, on occasion, they refute it, re refused it, but that was in the cases of like high treason. And whatever Jesus was written up for, we all know that Pilate didn't see him as an actual threat to Rome. Um, that doesn't seem to be the case. It would make total sense for Pilate to give an exception in this situation. He doesn't see Jesus as actually guilty of high treason. Um, he's like, yeah, what does this have to do with me? He's, he's goaded into it. The quote here from, um, here, here's the response book. And you've got to know about this book because I'm going to reference this book a couple times. So this was Dr. Bart Ehrman's book, How Jesus Became God. Well, this is a response book written by four different scholars called How God Became Jesus. And it's, is it five scholars, excuse me? Um, Bird, Evans, Gather, Cole, Hill, and Tilling. And so all five of these guys came together and they offered a response, a very scholarly response to Bart Ehrman's very misleading book. And I'm not the only one who thinks it's misleading. Um, a lot of other scholars do too. So um, not that I'm a scholar. I'm not. I'm, I'm just I'm just a weird YouTuber, right? I have no qualifications of any kind. Um, except clickbait thumb, thumbnails. That's my real qualification. All right. So um, I'm joking. That's my sarcasm. I know it's dry. All right, the, um, the phrase that we get here in How God Became Jesus, page 76, is that, quote, the bodies of persons who've been punished should, um, oh, and we get this from, oh, I totally got confused in my own notes there. So the digesta is discussed in chapter four of the book, How God Became Jesus. That's why I'm referring to it now. But the, um, the second quote from the digesta is the following. The bodies of persons who've been punished should be given to whoever requests them for the purpose of burial. Now, that is in the same section about how to handle people who are killed as they're executed by the government. And it's clear Roman law. Yes, you can hand the bodies over. So, so it seems to be then that the exception to the rule, like the normal rule is you can bury people when they're crucified. There's an exception to the rule that in some cases they won't be buried. They won't be buried. At least that was the general regional thing, although in some specific places it may have been different. It was also, so that's the Roman laws. Uh, let's talk about Jewish stuff because that's where you start to understand why this was actually super important that even the enemies of Jesus wanted him buried, 
right, in a tomb. Yeah, and this is why. So Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. This is a law of the Old Testament, and I'm not arguing here that Romans would obey all the laws. That's not at all what I'm saying. But let's think about the mentality of the Jews at the time. Um, if a man was committed, has committed a sin worthy of death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang on uh, hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day for he who is hanged is accursed of God. So, you sh so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Um, the first thing to know, this is not about the goodness of the man. You're not burying him to honor him. You will bury him. You will take him down that day before nighttime and you will bury him, right? Because it will defile the land. That means it doesn't matter how wicked it, it could be Barabbas up on that thing. We want to get him down. The two other guys on the cross, they want to get them down. They want to bury them that day because it's considered defiling the land, which is a big deal, right? That's actually, um, this is what uh, Dr. Evans talks about in his, in his in chapter four of this book and some other work he's done as well. He talks about how uh, there's actually records from the Mishnah, from the Jewish writings just after the time of Christ that talk about how it's the Sanhedrin's job Right, that that's the Jewish like Supreme Court, the people who condemn Jesus. It's their job to make sure the land stays clean, and so they had the particular job of actually taking people down and, and burying them when they had been executed. So the the sources we have suggest that even though Rome would execute somebody, the San in Jerusalem in particular, the Sanhedrin would make sure they were buried that night so as to keep the land clean because that was one of their tasks to keep the religious purity of the land. This was such a big deal to them that, according to Dr. Evans, it would cause riots and uprises in Israel if they if they just left bodies up on the crosses on a normal basis. This would be a real, really big problem. Now, on the other hand, Dr. Ehrman, in his book, How, How Jesus Became God, right? Back to this book. <laughs> um, in his book, on page 157, he disagrees with this. He says, it was not the Jews who killed Jesus. And so they had no say about when he would be taken down from the cross. Moreover, the Romans who did crucify him had no concern to obey Jewish law and virtually no interest in Jewish sensitivities. And the problem here is that um, we, we, don't, we, we should think the Romans did care about Jewish sensitivities because they care about bringing peace into their empire, not because they were like so, so compassionate and, and loving towards the Jewish people, right? No, they just compare about, they care about peace in the empire. And the fact that the Sanhedrin even exists in the first place, that this Jewish Supreme Court exists, the fact that there's even um, Herod is a, a Jewish ruler up in Galilee, the fact that these people even exist at the time is proof that the Romans are trying to allow Jewish sensitivities and self-government to a degree they don't allow them to execute people, but they clearly do allow people to bury those that are executed. Pilate obviously cared about um, Jewish sensitivities. Ehrman himself uh, mentions in his in his work the occasion where Pilate put Roman standards in Jerusalem. Th these are this is an event when Pilate first moved in, right? This is before Jesus goes public with his ministry, but during his during Jesus's life, Pilate becomes the governor, and he does what's kind of normal, right? He takes Roman standards like shields and stuff with, with Caesar's face on them and he puts them in Jerusalem. And there they are in the holy city and the Jews are flipping out because they're like, you, you know, Caesar claims this title of deity, this divine title, and we're monotheists. So we reject that. And they traveled to Caesarea and there they said, Pilate, we would rather you kill us, right? This group of Jews. We'd rather you kill us than leave those Roman standards there. Now here Pilate has to decide between honoring the, the the Caesar versus pleasing the people to avoid uprising. And what does Pilate do? 
Pilate takes the standards down out of the capital of, of, of the country, of the Jewish land, and he pleases the people. Because Romans cared about Jewish sensitivities. They just, they clearly did. They very much cared about, since this is why they would try to offer sacrifices to, to any, any god they, that was in the region wherever they showed up. Because they were trying to create a, a, um, a unified empire, right? Even if it was a weird kind of unity. So Pilate cared about Jewish sensitivities. Um, the, the Romans, according um, to Josephus, in fact, I'm going to read another section here from page 77 of... This is okay. This is the bad book. This is Bart Ehrman's book, right? This is the good book. This is, <laughs> this is the response to Bart Ehrman's book by multiple scholars. Um, but I'm going to read here page uh, 76 and a section of 77, I think, from this book here. Um, the Romans, Josephus says, Josephus is a first century historian, do not require their subjects to violate their national laws. Now, this is in Josephus's book against Appian uh, 273, if you're looking for the reference. He's, he, they don't, generally speaking, the general rule for Roman government is that they're not going to require the subjects to violate whatever their national laws are. That's the normal rule of government. Uh, Bart acts like, but when people are executed, we don't care anymore. Like, they have a whole different policy for government at that point. And that, that seems made up. Um, the Jewish historian, I read on from page 77 here, the Jewish historian and apologist adds that the Roman procurators who succeeded Agrippa I, um, quote, by abstaining from all interference with the customs of the country, kept the nation at peace. So from Josephus's book, Jewish War, uh, forgive me, I'm just throwing the references out there. This is for those who want to look this up. 2.220, that's the reference. This is... Um, this is their normal thing. They abstain from interference of the customs of the country in order to keep the nation at peace. And the comment from Dr. Evans is these customs include never leaving a corpse unburied. That's one of the customs that includes. So this is I interesting that if you were to read, and think of the impact this has on you, okay? Because I care about this. Like I'm a pastor. I'm not a scholar. I'm not trying to pretend I am. But, but I'm like... I'm like looking and going, that's just horribly misleading. Like if I read Bart Ehrman stuff, I could be like convinced that I was wrong all along about the resurrection of Jesus. The evidence is totally against it. The empty tomb isn't even, they made it all up. Like, oh my goodness. Not knowing that I'm just getting bad information and part of the story and not the whole thing. And that's really unfortunate. Um, and that's really unfortunate. So I'm making a video. Josephus, in one of the stories, Josephus actually had a story where this first century historian, he, he was traveling, and he's a Jew, right? But he's also Roman, he's both. And he's traveling and he sees uh, three friends of his that are on crosses being crucified. He knows these guys. And he requests to have them taken down. This is in his Life of Josephus, uh, 420 and 421. He records asking for them to be taken down. And they were actually taken off the crosses. And, and I'm telling you this story for a reason. They were taken off the crosses, given the best medical treatment available because Josephus just had favor with whoever was in charge at the moment. And two of them died. One of them survived, right? Showing you just the danger of even, even only partly being crucified. But if you were to take Bart Ehrman's logic, you would have to look at Josephus, I think, and say, oh, he made that up. Right? Because Romans wouldn't allow people to be taken off the cross. The whole point of being put up on the cross is so that you're going to die. Like, this is execution. You know, Romans don't care about your cultural sensitivities, Josephus, or your friends. Like, you would reject. Here's an, a danger in history. When we say, generally this is true, therefore exceptions are impossible or so unlikely as to be 
dismissed and as inventions. That's a, a dangerous perspective to have if you have it in a clumsy fashion, as I think Dr. Ehrman does, and many atheists and skeptics online I interact with have a very clumsy treatment of first century history. And I, I admit, many Christians do too. Most people have a pretty clumsy treatment of history in general. When we're talking about the center of our faith, let's not do that, right? <laughs> the resurrection of Jesus, let's not be clumsy. Like, let's, let's be careful. So um, th that's pretty interesting. Now, there's one more quote from Josephus that I think is the best one and probably the most important one as it relates to Jerusalem. Because I've been talking about Rome in general. We talked about an exception in Egypt, but what about Jerusalem? Josephus actually has a quote in his writings, and he's not a Christian, okay, just in case anybody wondered that. And he has a quote in his writings that standard practice in Jerusalem in particular was to take people down off crosses before the night falls and to bury them. Let me read to you the quote. I'll share how Dr. Ehrman responds and how I would respond to that. In Josephus' Jewish Wars, Book 4, 317, he says, and I quote, Nay, and he's talking about um, this group of uh, this, this group of guys that were um, attacking Jerusalem during the rebellion and during the, 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 the war with Rome. So th this is a time of war now. This is 70 AD. This is 30 years af 40 years after Jesus. And now they're at war with Rome. There's no more peace. So he says, Nay, they proceeded to that degree of impiety as to cast away their dead bodies without burial. Okay, that's what happened in 70 AD. There was, there was such war going on in Jerusalem. They just threw the bodies out. These, these, um, these Idumeans is, is the group that he talks about here. And he says, although the Jews, this is the important part, although the Jews used to take so much care of the burial of men that they took down those that were condemned and crucified and buried them before the going down of the sun. This is hugely important. Josephus, non-Christian, first century historian, who was an eyewitness to many of these things, he says that it was standard practice in Jerusalem, at least, if not all of Israel, that even though the Romans would crucify people, the Jews would come and take their bodies down and bury them because it was their custom to do so because of, obviously, Deuteronomy. Now, Bart Ehrman responds to this, and he's like, no, this doesn't count because Josephus, and this is a very strange response, but Josephus is talking about the Idumeans, and the Idumeans aren't even the Romans. That, I think, is a little confusing. There can be a debate, I guess, and I don't know the right answer here. There's a debate about who the Idumeans really were. Uh, were they conscripted Roman military? Or were they some other faction? But my, my answer to this, honestly, is who cares? Like, he, he could have been talking about, like, the staff of McDonald's who were doing this. It doesn't matter who he's talking about. No offense if you work at McDonald's. But, um, but here's the thing. What the value of Josephus' claim is that there's standard practice in Israel, and that's the thing we care about. Not what weird things happen during war, at, in 70 AD during the war, but what would normally happen before that when Jesus was alive. And he says the standard practice is the Jews, even though the Romans would kill them, the Jews would come and take them down before nightfall and bury them. This is consistent. There's even more evidence um, from the earth. That's kind of a big deal, right? Like if I have, if I would, I would never drop a microphone because like I think it's rude and these are expensive pieces of equipment and I used to be a sound guy, so I would never drop a mic. But if I, I would drop it for Josephus on his behalf, if I could. All right, let me read forward here. Um, more evidence uh, that this is the case historically is in the earliest rabbinic writings, which say that a person, who, this is really, again, this is where it gets a little confusing. I, I, I'm sorry if I don't explain it well, but I'm going to try. That um, early rabbinic writings 
say that a, from just after this time, right? Not during the time, but after the time of Jesus. They say that a person who's executed could be buried in a tomb, a tomb, but just not an honorable tomb. So you could have a, two different kinds of tombs that they would keep on hand, that the Sanhedrin in particular would keep on hand. They had tombs for like, you know, normal, good, honorable burial, and they had tombs, a location for dishonorable burial. It was still a tomb. It was still a tomb. And that executed people had to be put in those tombs. They could not be put in their family tomb right away. They could not be put, you know, with, they couldn't, you couldn't put a dishonored body with an honored body. That was the rule. This is interesting. This is in, this is in the, like the Talmud stuff. So there's more though. And this is where it gets a little complex, complex. They had burial procedures that are really weird to us nowadays, but this is what they would do. They would take your body, they would put it inside of a tomb, limestone, generally speaking, around Jerusalem. And in that tomb, laying on like a bench of some kind, your body would decay over time. About one year later, they generally would wait 12 months. They'd come back, they'd you know move the stone out of the way, they'd go into the tomb, and they would collect your bones. They would put your bones in something called an ossuary, which is like a, a bone box. It's about the size of a femur because that's the longest bone in the body. And it was made of usually stone or maybe sometimes wood. And these ossuaries would be would be storage places for your bones. And what they would do then is they would, they would just have your bones in an ossuary, like in a slot in the wall or set somewhere in the tomb. And that table where you had decayed before, that was then used for the next family member who died. So you get the idea that you're, you're, you have like two burials. They have the first burial, the second burial. So according to the, to the um, ancient rabbinic writings, here's the info we've got. For the first burial, if you're crucified, you can't be put in that family tomb on that slab where all your other bodies were because it's dishon bringing dishonor to that. You need to be put in a different tomb. Now, a year later, they have specific teaching on this. A year later, the family can come back and they can gather your bones and they can move it from a place of dishonor to a place of honor. It's as though the dishonor has faded after a year. So there were there were people who were crucified, who were buried in known tombs. The Sanhedrin, the Jews, were the ones to do it, even though the Romans killed them. And they would put them in a place of dishonor, but it was still a buried known tomb. We even have charcoal markings we found on tomb walls where they would write down like, you know, here lies so-and-so. So that later when it's just bones, you know, yeah, that's where we put relative so-and-so, then they could transfer them over to the correct family tomb. These are historical things that most people are not aware of, even sometimes scholars that write in the field. At least according to Dr. Evans, he complains that sometimes scholars writing on this don't seem to be aware of these issues. I would say Barton Ehrman's an example of that, or whether he's aware or not, he's not, I don't know what he knows, but he isn't necessarily addressing all of these issues. Um, certainly not in his book, How God, How Jesus Became God, which seems to paint a very false picture of things. So Joseph's tomb, let's talk real quick about Joseph of Arimathea, his tomb where Jesus was buried. Um, this, uh, this tomb was never used by anyone else. That's what scripture says about it. And it seems like a really random claim. And you might be thinking like, okay, pastorally, I'm like, I'm going through the word. I'm like, Jesus was buried in a tomb where no one else had laid. Ooh, what's, what's the message there? What's the meaning there? And there, maybe there's a theological point we can pull from that. But actually, historically, the meaning there would be very different than that. The meaning would simply be Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, the kind guy who would who would go to Pilate, ask for the body of Jesus. He goes, he gets the body. He puts it in a tomb that has been freshly dug, right, cut into the cave and carved out with tables and things like that. And nobody's buried there. This means, like according to some, like uh, Rachel Hakli Haklili, I think her name is actually Rachel. 
Rachel Hachlili. I, I can't do it. Anyway, according to one scholar who has really focused on burial and traditions and tombs and stuff like that in Israel, and I have one of her articles, I think, linked below, I think. At any rate, according to her, what this means is that when Jesus' body was placed in the tomb, there was no violation of the Sanhedrin's rules. You see, it wasn't an honorable tomb yet because no body was in it yet. When Jesus' body was placed in it, it became a place of dishonor. Still a proper tomb. And no, no, you know, so Joseph may have had to give up having anybody from his family buried in that tomb when he put Jesus in there. That was a big sacrifice. But then he may have changed his mind after Jesus raised from the dead and God bestowed such honor upon him. So in other words, it's historical, guys. It all fits. It's like, it's like here's the historical facts extra biblically. Here's the biblical account. And they go like this. The empty tomb should be consensus. Like everybody should hold to it, I think. Um, let's see. I'm, I'm getting I'm getting excited about this. So I'm, I'm losing my place in my notes. Um, now, oh, one more thing I'll add. The fact that Jesus could be relocated to a family tomb a year later, right? That, that Joseph, the Sanhedrin, the guys who were in charge of this sort of thing, takes him and buries him in his own tomb. The fact that it's not considered an honorable location yet, so then that would actually be in accordance with the rules, although it would probably get him heat from the, from the Sanhedrin when they found out where he buried them. But it also means it would be important to note where Jesus was buried. And so we have women who follow and track where Jesus is buried, who want to come back later and grieve privately. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Today's study might be kind of long, but it's all going to be good. What I'm saying is a mass grave doesn't fit Leaving Jesus on the cross for, for week, a week, for many days, to slowly die, to be eaten by scavengers, then be unrecognizable, thrown into a mass grave where nobody would know it was even him. This does not fit. Saying that crucified victims just simply wouldn't ever get buried or put in tombs doesn't fit. In fact, we have proof, absolute proof, that that's not the case. Case in point, this these couple pictures here, which are of the same thing. One's a recreation, one's the original. This is the, the heel bone of a guy named Yehohanan, or John, we would say in modern uh, English. This is a man whose bones found in an ossuary, meaning he had proper burial, second burial. So he must have been buried first and then second proper burial. And he had a spike still in his heel. His legs may have been broken. There's more than one set of bones in, in, in the spot where they found him. There were three bodies of bones. So there are broken shins. They could be from him, from the breaking of the legs to speed up the death because of regular practice of wanting to bury people before sundown in Jerusalem, just like Josephus says. This guy was crucified. Here's what's interesting. He's in Jerusalem. And it was only a few years before Jesus, very likely in the beginning of Pontius Pilate's governorship or just before it. Which means we have the bones of a man properly buried in Jerusalem around the time of Jesus proving that this argument is weird. Jesus wasn't buried because it just never happened. It's happening right there. <laughs> that's, that's happening right there. So the nail bent, it seems, and got stuck in the wood. So they had to hack the, the wood of the cross apart and to, to get him down off of it. That's why the nail stays in his, in his heel. Um, what um, Dr. Evans points out in his work on this is that heel bones and wrist bones and things like this are the are very often from 2,000 years ago just fragments and pieces. Now the nail stuck there and never never was removed, couldn't be removed, and was just attached to the foot 
So that's why we found it. But the truth is, he says, there may be many more crucified people whose bones we have found and we just don't know because they didn't have this weird situation where the nail got stuck in the wood. And so foot, wood, nail all stuck together permanently. That's pretty interesting. So he, he's suggesting that saying we've only found the bones of one crucified person is, is actually a little misleading. We know we found the bones of this crucified person. We may have found the bones of many others and just don't know it. Another interesting find. Now, this is in an article um, by uh, Rachel Hick-Lilly, Hick uh, who I'm sure I'm mispronouncing her name and I apologize. Um, she talks about how we found over 100 nails from crucified victims over 100 nails, some of which are at least a, a, some significant portion are from crucified victims. And we found them in tombs. Now, this is where it gets, again, complicated. Okay? It's not super simplistic. The, the nails, they're found in tombs, but they're not necessarily the tombs of the people they were crucified in, uh, who received the crucifixion. What we're saying is these nails came from a crucified victim, and then they ended up being in a tomb for some reason. Let's talk more about it. The... Um, the calcium rings on the nails are part of the, probably the most interesting part. So these nails, often little short ones, they, they have these rings of calcium that go around them. Now this is where, and man, I was trying to find more research on this, um, but Dr. Evans talks about it in chapter four of the book, um, how uh, God became Jesus. And I know he has more stuff on it in some other sources. Um, I just wasn't able to get it, all, get it all going in time. But these calcium rings, he says, um, they wouldn't happen if somebody was crucified and then the nail was simply pulled out that day. The calcium rings are a result of the nail being left on the body after burial and time goes by and rust and the bones kind of intermingle and then the nails remove sometime much later and then the, the nail is put in somebody else's tomb, probably somebody else's tomb, possibly the same person's tomb. It's hard to tell at this point because the bones are all fragmentary. So why would he say that? Well, the thing is, there's two burials. Remember, for, for the Jewish burial traditions, you've got one burial in a tomb, probably in a dishonorable place if you were crucified. A year later, the family comes, they retrieve the body, the nail is then removed, it seems, and it's now used, and this is the weird part, as like a talisman. There's actually writings in, the, and I think it's in the Mishnah, that um, one of the examples of this is that the Jews considered it, kind of like, think of it like a good luck charm, but like having actual powers, um, they would sometimes, for healing, they would take a nail from a crucified person and they would place it over the neck of, you know, on a, on a necklace over the neck of somebody who they were trying to heal. Now, two things that are interesting. Okay, yeah, that's weird. <laughs> uh, one, two, it gives them motive to mark where people are buried when they're crucified, to come back later and get the nails. The calcium seems to indicate according to Dr. Evans, that these nails stayed with the bodies, meaning they had to have had entombment, proper burial, meaning a lot of people were crucified and had proper burial. That's the bottom line. But the other thing is this. In the first century, you would have, if you would have seen all kinds of strange religious practices going on. Weird things happening, exorcists doing all kinds of weird things, people when they were healing, trying to use special talismans and stuff like that. And when you read in the Gospels, like Mark, for instance, of how Jesus heals people, he's not like that at all. He violates his culture. And he just commands people to get healed, generally speaking. I think that, um, for instance, when he, when he makes mud and all that, I have a whole study on that. I think he did that for the sake of the guy, right? So the guy could, could hear and experience touch. He can't see, so he can't, um, uh, he can't see what Jesus is doing and all that. So I, I think that, anyway, I have a whole study on that. But Jesus doesn't use the magical ritual type stuff we see from the culture. And that's kind of because 
It's not from the culture. It's just what God did. So um, in response to all of these things, the, the implication, the bottom line for these 100 plus nails, 114 nails, I think, that uh, Rachel Huckley talks about, the response from Dr. Ehrman is um, these nails, two in particular, they focus on two nails, and we'll talk about that as well. Man, I know how complicated it is today, and I apologize if I'm losing anybody. But two of the nails in particular that were found with Caiaphas, or uh, they're, they're, they were originally in one in Caiaphas's ossuary and the other one, another of another ossuary. Why is this guy important? Okay, Caiaphas, high priest during the time of Jesus. He dies, he gets buried. We find his tomb in the 1970s, I think it was. And in his ossuary are his bones. And found with him, found in his tomb, were two nails, his family tomb. And these nails are from crucified victims because they have these calcium rings around them. They did petrochemical analysis of them and all this kind of thing. So, Bart Ehrman says, hey, look, you found these nails in Caiaphas's tomb. Caiaphas was not crucified. End of story. These nails prove, according to him, they prove nothing about anything about crucifixion. The nails, and then he has an explanation for why, why the nails are there. The nails are there because they just use nails to write inscriptions on the ossuaries or on the walls to be like, this is Caiaphas. And then they just discarded the nail because it was like considered unclean because it had come in contact with the dead body. And he's not the only scholar who says this, although it seems to be demonstrably wrong. Um, in the, the, the good book, How God Became Jesus. <laughs> you like that I just call it the good book? Um, I just think it's funny. All right, so um, Dr. Evans res responds with this claim. Notice the claim about these nails. He says, the presence of calcium, sometimes encircling the nail, indicates its use in crucifixion. Okay, that makes sense. You human bones, right? And suggests that the corpse, still pierced by the nails, was buried. And sometime later, when the calcium had adhered to the nail, the nails were recovered and put to new use. Why do I say that even though I've said it before? Notice this, the argument about the nails is not that they're buried with the people who were crucified. The argument about the nails is the calcium rings show that the bodies were properly entombed and then later the nails were retrieved. Therefore, these nails come from someone who was buried like in a tomb, even though it was, might've been a dishonorable burial, it was still in a tomb. Dr. Ehrman doesn't respond to this. He just says it wasn't Caiaphas, so that's it. Again, this is just, I think it's not logical. Um, now, there's a paper recently published on this topic, and I'm going to go ahead and show it to you here. This is the paper. Yeah, I read it and understood some of it. Petrochemistry of sediment and organic materials sampled from ossuaries and two nails from the tomb of the family of the high priest Caiaphas, Jerusalem. This paper puts to bed the issue of whether these nails really really came from Caiaphas's tomb. Interestingly enough, the nails themselves came from inside one of them inside Caiaphas's ossuary. Now, that's weird. If you use the nail to write inscriptions, why was it put inside of Caiaphas's ossuary where his bones are? It's kind of a sacred place. That would seem very strange. The paper has a lot of details about these bones. Um, pictures, serious, like high-level science, petrochemical analysis of the, of the nails themselves, the tomb, the ossuary, the walls, the dirt, the rate of blah, 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 stuff that you probably will have a hard time caring about. <clears throat> Their conclusion, though, is all the nails contain some adhered or perforated remains of bone tissue. They also found wood on the nails, implying humans were nailed to pieces of wood with these, with these nails. 
they give a very long and detailed analysis to support that these two nails um, are from the tomb of Caiaphas, one of them in his ossuary. Ehrman, now let's come back to Ehrman's second claim. He claims that the nails were just used for inscriptions and discarded. The paper directly addresses this, not targeting Dr. Ehrman, but this is a claim that's come not just from him, but from others as well. And they reject that claim as just lacking evidence. It's interesting how they deal with the claim. They go, the claim just lacks evidence. <laughs> There's no evidence of that. Um, let me quote to you now where they think the nails, why they think the nails are actually there in Caiaphas' ossuary. Do you care about this? I hope you care about this. I hope this matters more to you than playing that video game. All right. I'm reading you the quote now from the paper. They say, it follows that the presence of two nails with slivers of accreted cedar wood contain tra containing traces of remain, trace remains of bone tissue present, present in two different ossuaries in the tomb of Caiaphas suggests that although neglected, these rare artifacts were an important issue in the family of the high priest. In other words, let me pause the quote. They're put there deliberately because Caiaphas' family thought these nails were somehow important for the dead. Uh, maybe it wards off evil spirits. I mean, th these are not biblical views, but these are their views of the time. Maybe it wards off evil spirits. Uh, maybe it it brings some sort of help to them in the afterlife. Um, you know, they're trying to, they have them there for some reason, and it's not for inscribing things. I continue the quote now. In consequence of the full range of observations above, we feel confident in concluding that one, the nails that we sampled are the missing nails from the Caiaphas family tomb, and two, the nails were very probably used in a crucifixion. Now, if I haven't lost everybody yet, maybe I haven't lost anybody. I, I just, I feel sometimes as a teacher, I go, I feel like I'm going to lose people right now, but I hope not. Okay, so Ehrman's conclusion, his response to these, to, to this, these nails in the blog post is overstated quite a bit. He says, quote, and I, um, I will put the link below for this. I don't think I did, but I will put it down below to his blog post. He says, quote, there is not a shred of evidence then that these nails were buried with crucified victims. They therefore do not provide any evidence that crucified victims were given decent burials. He never dealt with the calcium issue. Not really. He just said it was, it was, they're buried with Caiaphas. Therefore they weren't, they weren't, you know, no evidence about burial of crucifixion victims. So it just doesn't deal with the evidence. Remember Dr. Ehrman's statement. I've not quote, I've not run across any contrary indications in any ancient source. Remember that? That is the stuff people remember. This is, I think, one of the things that's helped Dr. Ehrman get his book sales going really big is he sometimes just makes these very strong claims. And people won't remember the trail of evidence that led them there, but they will remember the, the conclusion, right? There's no evidence. There's no evidence. There's no And this is the, the mantra you hear from the internet. The internet tells me there's no evidence for Christianity. There's no evidence for God. The internet tells, tells it to me so loud, I almost want to believe it. But there's, except for all the, all the evidence, you know. <laughs> so um, he says he hasn't run across any contrary indications in any ancient source. I don't think his book is is honest. I think it's misleading. And he, in the book, in the same book where this where he has this quote, he doesn't even mention, like literally doesn't even mention the bones of Yehohanan, who we know was crucified and properly buried. Like he never mentions them in the book. It doesn't even come up. He doesn't even deal with it. So this is somewhat misleading. But there's other examples too. So on your screen now, if you guys are watching on on, on a video somewhere, we have multiple places. There is the app, there is the website, and there is YouTube. So Bible thinker all over the place. But there's the Yohohanan nail. We talked about that on the top right. There's the two Caiaphas nails, which were on the bottom. 
the two bottom nails there. And then on the top, on the left of your screen, is the Abba nail. This is another guy who was crucified and beheaded, and he ended up receiving proper burial. It gets a little complicated. He was brought to Jerusalem. He wasn't crucified there, but he was given a proper burial. Um, yeah. Can, can, I, can I just pause before we move on to the next section of today's study and say this? That's a lot of confirming evidence for the biblical account. We're going to go through the biblical account now, and we're going to read it in light of all that evidence. And we're going to see Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. And that this, we have no good, sufficient reasons to doubt the truthfulness of this account. All right, here we go. Mark chapter um, 15, verse 42. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came. By the way, the preparation day evening, it's about 3 p.m. or just after 3 p.m. on Friday that Joseph shows up. This is the last day the shops are open um, before the, the holy day where they're not going to do any work. Okay, it's the last day the shops are open. That's my understanding of the timeline of these events. And if you want to debate me on it, uh, go ahead in the comments. I will make sure to read and reply to every possible person who thinks I'm wrong. <laughs> All right, verse 43. Um Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council. Who are the people that do, that make sure that the land stays clean? Who are the people that, as far as Pilate's concerned, come and take people down off the cross for burial, or at least retrieve the bodies for burial? That would be the council, the Sanhedrin. Joseph of Arimathea came, prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. An interesting statement. Mark is pretty vague about it. He may, side theory here, he might have been protecting Joseph of Arimathea. Later on, we get more details about these guys, like John, who writes later. Um, we, we have more stuff, like, say, Nicodemus is discussed. Mark doesn't mention him. I think he might have been protecting their identities to some extent. He just says Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. Even though Luke calls him a disciple, Luke writes later. Um, so the, at least I think he does, and most people think he does. If that's the case, <clears throat> the vague phrase, waiting for the kingdom of God, it may imply his, his believing in Jesus, but secret, which makes historical sense as well. Let me drink some water before I die. <sighs> Death averted. All right. He comes, he's waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathers up courage, and he goes in before Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. Why did this take courage? Um, <clears throat> you could say he was afraid of Pilate. Um, it could also be that he's afraid of his own Sanhedrin guys. He's afraid of those guys. So he gathers up courage, and he goes in. Verse um, 44, remember this procedure. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. Step one. Now, step two, verse 45, ascertaining this from the centurion, confirming the death, he granted the body to Joseph, right? Then, verse 46, Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in a linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb, which he, which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. <clears throat> That's all we're going to cover, but let me cover it now in light of all the evidence. And answering a few more objections to Joseph of Arimathea in particular, Lots of, uh, lots of brain work for you guys today. <clears throat> so, step one, Joseph asks Pilate. That's consistent with the historical uh, order of events, we're going to find out. Pilate asks to confirm that Jesus is dead. That's consistent. He confirms he's dead. He grants the request. Joseph buries him. Joseph's, uh, Jesus' body, side note, in verse 46, is called him. 
but in the other areas in the chapter, you know, it's called the body of Jesus, like his body, the body, but then he calls it him later. Perhaps this is Mark just wanting to remind us in the Holy Spirit that it's the same body that will rise. Jesus didn't um, ditch his body, right? It was the same body that resurrected, the bodily resurrection of Christ, central Christian doctrine. So does historical research support or refute specifically Joseph of Arimathea? Here's where Dr. Bart Ehrman is going to argue against it from his book. Here's a long quote from his book, The Bad One. <laughs> Jesus Became God, I think very misleading, and hopefully I'm demonstrating that it's misleading. Um, from pages 152 and 153, I'm going to read from the book. He's basically going to say that um, Joseph's story doesn't make sense because Mark has all the Sanhedrin condemning Jesus the morning of his crucifixion, and then he has a member of the Sanhedrin coming to help Jesus and honor him afterwards, and that turnaround seems contradictory, so Bart thinks it was made up. Let me read you the quote. There are numerous reasons, this is, by the way, page 152 and 153. There are numerous reasons for doubting the tradition of Jesus' burial by Joseph. For one thing, it's hard to make historical sense of this tradition just within the context of Mark's narrative. So Mark contradicts itself, according to him. Joseph's identification as a respected member of the Sanhedrin should immediately raise questions. Mark himself said that at Jesus' trial, which took place the previous evening, the whole council, that's in quotes, the whole council of the Sanhedrin, not just some of them or most of them, but all of them, tried to find evidence against Jesus to put him to death. And at the end of this trial, because of Jesus' statement that he was the son of God, in verse 62 of Mark 14, they all condemned him as deserving of death. In other words, according to Mark, this unknown person, Joseph, was one of the people who had called for Jesus' death just the night before he was crucified. Why, after Jesus is dead, is he suddenly risking himself, as implied by the fact that he had to gather up his courage, and seeking to do an act of mercy by arranging for a decent burial for Jesus' corpse? Mark gives us no clue. My hunch, and here's Ehrman's thought, is that the trial narrative and the burial narrative come from different sets of traditions inherited by Mark, or Mark simply, uh, or or did Mark simply invent one of those two traditions himself and overlook the apparent discrepancy? There's a fatal contradiction, because in Mark fourteen sixty two, I think it was sixty two, it says this. No, not sixty two. 60, let me put it on your screen here, 64. <clears throat> you have heard his blasphemy, how does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And it's a, it hangs on this word all. All, according to Ehrman, according to his logic, it requires that when Mark says all condemned him to death, it means every individual member of the Sanhedrin actively condemned Jesus to death. And anything other than that is a contradiction now. Do you feel like sometimes those who want to say the Bible contradicts are actually just being too wooden in their own understanding of language? And I think that is the case a lot of the time. Let me give you an example of where Mark uses the same Greek word for all, and nobody thinks he means all. I typed first Mark for some reason. I don't know what book that is. All right. Mark chapter 1, verse 5. Mark says, all the country of Judea was going out to him, to John the Baptist. And all the people of Jerusalem... And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. According to Mark, every single citizen in the entire country of Judea and every person in Jerusalem went and got baptized by John. And if Mark has any point 
later on in his book, according to the logic that Ehrman uses, right? if there's any point in this book that there's people in Jerusalem who weren't baptized by John, then Mark has a fatal contradiction and he must have invented up something or got it from alternate. Do you, do you see how forced this is? Here's possi two possible ways of reconciling the supposed contradiction. Possibility number one, Joseph may not have been present. What if all means every individual person without exception? Not all like like the way you talk, the way you and I talk. Man, all the people were just loving it. Okay, well, oh, was that one guy like this? And then I'm like, you lied, you said all. They're like, but nobody thought you meant. You couldn't find a single exception to my all. Um, so possibly number one, Joseph may not have been present when the rest of the Sanhedrin voted on this stuff. Remember, it was a trial in the nighttime. They had a vote. They they did not have a scheduled Sanhedrin meeting that day. They had to call their members together. And if they knew that Joseph, maybe Nicodemus, maybe some other guys had leanings towards Jesus, they may not have invited them to this trial. We have seen this again in our own government. Other governments have done this. They've held votes without asking some members to be there in order to have an all vote, an all yes vote, because they knew that that person would cause problems. That's possibly number one. Is it, is it true? I don't know. It's definitely possible. It's a reasonable explanation. Another possibility, number two, Joseph may have been just uh, present, but abstained from voting when the voting occurred. And you could still take all to mean all in the very strict sense, because it would just mean that every positive vote, when they voted to condemn Jesus, all the hands that went up and said, yay, all of them said, yay, and nobody said nay, right? There may have been people abstaining. Maybe they just didn't say anything for fear, for shame, for whatever, and they said nothing. So all the votes would be, yes, the vote of the Sanhedrin was, a, was a, un, a unanimous condemnation vote, but some members perhaps abstained. We have this in government as well. This is not far-fetched or strange. And it would be consistent with Luke 23. Because look at the way Luke writes about what Joseph did. It says about Joseph that he had not consented to their plan and action when they wanted to kill Jesus. So... <clears throat> He hadn't consented for the plan. It doesn't say he voted against it. It says he didn't consent to it. He didn't give his vote for it. That's interesting, the way it's the way it's worded there. So that's another possibility. Or simply all just doesn't always mean every single individual without exception. Um, I think that we're just being wooden here. So that was considered a reason to reject the story, to like say the story's invented because of the word all. That seems really... I'll move on. <clears throat> all right. Why would I say Joseph, the Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea story is not legendary? What evidence do I have positively to support that it really happened? And you've already heard some of it, but I'll share even more. Does it bear the marks of historicity? Do the details, like I say, fit hand in glove that we know from the his, history of the time and we look at the biblical account? Does it go like that? Uh, Dr. Craig Evans, I already mentioned, he notes that it was the responsibility of the Jewish Sanhedrin at a later time. Wouldn't be hard to imagine it being their responsibility earlier on as well. Um, to bury the executed dead, especially in and around Jerusalem. Again, see chapter 4 of the good book, How God Became Jesus. That's a, a good location for you. Um, part of their job. Okay. And Joseph is one of those members. Pilate's response is also interesting because he wants to make sure Jesus is dead. Um, this, this, is, this is what Evan says on this topic. Really good stuff. Quote, I quote him now from uh, page 89 of his book. Pilate's response to Joseph's request, in which he inquires into Jesus's condition. Remember, I told you to remember that in Mark 15, 44. He's like, hey, centurion, is he really dead? Before I can grant the request, I need to confirm he's really dead. 
So he says, Pilate's response to Joseph's request in which he inquires into Jesus's condition reflects the practice of Roman officials. And he re- refers to the Oxyrhynchus papyri, which none of you are going to look up, uh, 475. <laughs> Go ahead if you want. Which says, take a public physician and view the dead body that has been shown and having delivered it up for burial, make a report in writing, which in which an, in which an official orders the inspection of a corpse. So this, this ancient writing suggests that the official had to double check the death of the corpse before you could hand them over to be buried. You had to make an official, an official check. And he calls a centurion to do this. Yeah. Evidence of historicity, super consistent with the actual events of the time. It's also multiply attested. It's not just in Mark. It's also in other locations. And John, to get not even more into the weeds, John has a uh, independent account of the burial of Jesus. He has information that's coming not from the same sources as Mark, and so it's multiply attested. And if you want to argue against that, do some research on it first. I, pl- I pl- beg you. <laughs> um, yeah, Arimathea also, Joseph is from where? Arimathea, there's a good chance that this is a place four to five miles north-northwest of Jerusalem called Ramathion Zophim or Ramathaim Zophim. He's, he's local. He's a, he's a well-known member of the Sanhedrin. He lives not far from Jerusalem. And you might be like, well, if he lives four or five miles away, why is his tomb in Jerusalem? Uh, Well, the scholar Raymond Brown, yeah, we looked into that too. (laughs) The scholar Raymond Brown, he says that many Jews who lived outside Jerusalem still wanted to be buried in Jerusalem because it was seen as the epicenter of God's future work when when he comes to raise the Jews back up. So they wanted to be buried in Jerusalem. Now think for a second if this is a legendary account. How strange it would be to invent a, a well-known member of the Sanhedrin to bury Jesus in Jerusalem in a known location. Why, If you're going to make stuff up, why make it so easy to prove wrong? Not only this, here's the weirdest part about the whole story of Joseph. It's very embarrassing to the disciples that they abandoned Jesus, right? And that Joseph, a, okay, the Sanhedrin throughout the book has been the bad guys, They kill Jesus, right? They're responsible for so much of the bad stuff that happens to Jesus. They want him dead. Why on earth as a Christian, if you were inventing stories about somebody burying Jesus to honor him, somebody coming to find him, why would you invent Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the the opposition, the Sanhedrin, why would you invent women, as we talked about last time, coming to the tomb? All of these things are really embarrassing and they made it harder for people to believe the message in the early church especially the women part. This is why we think it's more historically accurate now. Because we say, you know what? When you invent legend, you don't invent it like that. We have lots of examples of legend and they don't look like this. They don't look like this. If you were going to invent someone to bury Jesus and you're a Christian, who would you invent? Right? It's going to be Peter. It's a great, it's a great thing of him to honor Christ. I wouldn't even invent the whole thing about Peter, like denying Jesus and, and fleeing and all that. No, 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 no. I wouldn't admit that. Uh, That's one reason why that people think it's historical. And I would, I would be like Peter. Okay. Okay. Maybe not Peter. How about John, right? In John's gospel, we have him coming, at least staying close to Jesus. He could easily have just walked and seen where they laid Jesus. He could have come back on the next, you, you invent like a more authoritative source, a more respectable source in the community. And not Joseph of Arimathea, an opposition member, even a neutral person, like some random Joe Schmo, right? Like a, a Simon, Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross. Like even that guy would be better than Joseph of Arimathea, a Sanhedrin member. Yeah, this is just, 
It's just because it's what happened. Okay. It's also testable to the original hearers. He's from a nearby town, well-known member of the Sanhedrin, and the tomb is at a known location um, near a garden. And what motive, you might ask, to push back? What motive? Why would Joseph of Arimathea do this? But I can imagine lots of motives. It was an intense night. Joseph, whether he was there and abstained or he wasn't even present and found out later what they had done, he feels terrible. He feels ashamed that he hasn't done something to stop it. He feels embarrassed. Um, he, he, and he can. He's in a unique position as a Sanhedrin member to make it very likely that Pilate will grant the body if he asks for it. Because from Pilate's perspective, this dude represents the guys that do the burying. Then he takes and gets in trouble with his own guys when he buries him in his own tomb. Though technically, that's okay because nobody else has laid there. It all fits the history. The tomb itself, I'm not even done yet, right? There's more evidence to help support it. Not even done yet. Let me talk about this paper. <laughs> this paper right here. This is from Jody Magnus, who ironically works right down the hall from Dr. Bart Ehrman um, at, at uh, Chapel Hill, University of Chapel Hill, fellow uh, associate, a scholar of his. Um, he never seems to reference her work, <laughs> which seems to be refuting some of his. But any, at any rate, um, at least not in, in the stuff I've read from him. The, she talks about the tomb itself. And how the tomb and the story of Joseph, and let me point out, she's not a Christian. Catch that. Okay. She's not a Christian. Scholars dealt with this stuff. Because some people feel like they'll only believe Christianity if non-Christians tell them it's true. <laughs> it's kind of a strange standard. But hey, if that's what you need, um, Jody Magnus. So she talks about how there's three different types of stone tombs that have been discovered from the time of Jesus. Like 90% of them are not the kind that, that the Bible talks about Jesus being buried in. The majority of them are other kinds of tombs. The one we have that Jesus is described being buried in in the Gospels is what's called an acrosolia tomb or a bench tomb. It's a specific kind of tomb and it has the rolled door, the door that's rolled in front of it. Here's what they looked like, sort of, at least one example. So um, you're seeing two pictures. One is of the more typical tombs, which have the more square doors. These are not as fancy. These aren't for as rich folk. But on the other side, on the right part of your screen, there's a tomb and then you see, and I drew a little red line around it. That's the round stone door for the tomb. It'll be rolled and it'll fall into place. Like that's a good sound effect. It was very accurate, historically speaking. And then, it, then it's there. It can be removed, but it's difficult to remove. Now, only the most expensive tombs had these disc-shaped stones that were used as doors put in front of the tombs. The stone, according to the Bible, was rolled into the slot. It was a rolled stone, which would mean it was a particular kind of tomb. It's described when, when they go inside and they see the bench and all this other thing. It's an acrosolia tomb, which is the tomb of the rich. Do you catch that? Jesus wasn't rich, but he was buried in, a, in a, the tomb of someone who was rich according to the record we have in scripture. This stone here probably weighed 1,500 to 3,000 pounds. Kind of heavy, kind of hard to deal with. You can move it, but it's just not easy. Now, Mark says that the tomb belongs to Joseph. And many of the, we have this throughout the gospels. The tomb belongs to Joseph. Joseph is a rich man. Okay, you're part of the Sanhedrin. You're wealthy. He has just carved out his own tomb and he puts Jesus in it. Everything about it fits the history. Like that's the tomb of a rich man. There's, there's more. There's more. John and Luke tell us that nobody else had laid in the tomb. And that makes it a location where he could technically bury Jesus because it's not yet an honorable tomb. It's a blank slate. The tomb is also said, I haven't talked about this yet, but it's said to be in a garden. In a garden. 
Now we have ha- we have found specific tombs just outside a particular gate in Jerusalem. The name of the gate, the Garden Gate. Right? We found a number of tombs, and in particular, they're the rich people's tombs. They're the tombs like the Jewish high priest John Hyrcanus or Alexander Janaeus. These high these like high priests and uh, leaders, these people that were rich and wealthy. This is where they were buried in Israel by the garden gate. And Jesus is buried in the rich man's tomb in a garden. Like this is just coincidence. Like you either think the Bible's presenting to you like the best put together conspiracy ever. Or it's just true. (laughs) That's kind of what it comes down to. I think that we should see it as true. Now let me quote to you what Jody Magnus says after her. And I did read her paper and I did link it below. And you're welcome to read the whole thing. It's actually pretty interesting stuff. If you like, you know that sort of thing, then you probably will like it. But in her paper, Ossuaries and the Burials of Jesus and James, she says the following in conclusion. She says, and she has, she is an expert on Jewish burial practices, not a Christian. Here's the quote. The gospel accounts describing Jesus's removal from the cross and burial accord well with archaeological evidence and with Jewish law. Now, that seems like a a subtle thing to say. What we're saying is it's historical. Here's my recap. Let me break it all down. Everything I've said so far. The skeptics tell me, often being, you know, launched off the trampoline of Dr. Bart Ehrman's content. Um, Is that a nice visual for you? (laughs) That's how it feels on the internet. They just fly into it. Like, okay. Uh, They say that's not how things worked, Mike. Historically, Jesus didn't get buried. Joseph wouldn't have done it. The Romans didn't care. Um, it just wouldn't have been allowed. My response is, no, that's exactly how things worked. Historically. It seems historical and non-legendary, and perhaps that's why a majority of scholars do, even non-Christians, think that Jesus really was buried in a tomb that was found empty three days later. Think about that for a second. Slow down. May I encourage you? Some of you might need this. Sometimes, we have these strange scales. We can be gullible in a number of ways, right? And I'm gonna give you an analogy of scales here, okay? Here's my burden of proof scale, right? My burden of proof goes really high for some claims and really low for other claims. And now sometimes religious people like myself can be gullible in this sense. I perhaps am very, you know, gullible when someone's like, oh, God told me this, or I'm, you do this, or, you know, and, and they're, and we can be not skeptical enough. That's absolutely true. But what people don't recognize is on the other side, sometimes people become skeptical and their burden of proof for religious claims is very high and their burden of proof for skeptical claims is very low. Somebody tells them, well, the Romans just didn't do, didn't allow that. Jesus would have been buried. And they're like, oh, I guess that's true. And all they heard was someone say it out loud. <laughs> There's no evidence or support. So Please slow down. I've even met Christians who are like this plenty of times. They're very gullible about skeptical claims because there's something inside of us sometimes that thinks, if a smart person disagrees with me and they have big words, then maybe it means I'm wrong. And that's not rational if you study anything in detail. Like wake up call, smart people disagree about everything. But things are still true, no matter how smart the person saying it's not might be. Slow down with your own gullibility about skepticism. I don't want to be overly gullible religiously or overly gullible about skepticism. I want truth. Look for more info. Don't think that people who disagree with the Bible and who aren't Christians are automatically unbiased. They have their biases too. A non-Christian, 
is going to have a bias to not not be a Christian most of the time. A Christian is going to have a bias to more often than not stay Christian. Some Christians want to not be, <laughs> and that's their bias. And we all have biases. We've all got motives. It's just the reality of life. Jesus, though, Jesus really died historically. He was really buried. His tomb was really found empty. And the disciples really faced death and threat of death and suffering because they were truly believing they had seen him alive from the dead. These are things that actually happen in history, no matter what you do with it. you got to acknowledge this kind of stuff really happened. Um, I think it's great evidence for the central fact of the resurrection of Christ in our Christian faith. Our faith is based on historical reality, and that historical reality assures us of the future. And that's where I hope to bring you application, finally, <laughs> um, today, which is my encouragement to you. I'm sure you can find your own application in different ways. But one application is this, is that as, as, as people, we will face, we will all face death. And we need to look at our future death, and we need to learn to do this with the kind of hope that Jesus looked at his death with. That knowing that he'd be resurrected and then going forward with, yes, it hurt. Yes, he didn't like it. No, he didn't enjoy it. It wasn't a walk in the park, but it was with this confident hope and this strong knowledge of what would happen next. And if you have your faith in Christ, you need to have strong knowledge because the hardest trials you will face in life will probably not be some of the stuff you were thinking about. It'll be death. It'll be slowly wasting away. It'll be the news that the thing you've got is going to take you out. And that is so hard. You need to see a savior that conquered the grave so you can have hope about your future resurrection in Christ. You will see um, us again. We will see each other and you will be with him for eternity. And that good news is based on good historical facts. All right, let me pray with you and then uh, I'll share with you what I got planned for this week. Father, we thank you for, um, I mean, immeasurably for the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But Father, I also want to thank you, especially right now, for all the evidence that you've left. You left a trail of breadcrumbs to, to be followed for those who need it and who want it. It's there. Thank you for the access to scholarship that is able to deal with these things and help us to answer these questions and to help bolster and strengthen our own confidence because of the evidence. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. I, I don't know of any anything comparable anywhere else in any other belief system that could bring the kind of support that we can for these wild claims we have about the death and resurrection of our Savior. Thank you for helping us weak people by giving us evidential support. We're grateful. We pray, Lord, that you'd also give us wisdom so that when we encounter skeptical claims, um, we don't knee-jerk react to them, Lord, but we react with thoughtfulness and wisdom and knowledge. And we ask, Lord, that more and more people will become aware of the truth of Christ, turn their lives to Christ. So we pray that the, the, this ministry, Bible Thinker, and the video content that goes out and other apologetics ministries who are doing stuff online, that they would reach many people and would stir up true and genuine faith in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, y'all. Um, this week, so it's Monday. Wednesday, I'm going to put up a short video for you, like a clip. Friday, like every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time, um, I do a live stream where I answer your guys' questions from the live chat. I do 20 questions and I, I, I keep getting longer and longer. It used to be an hour. It's been like an hour and 40 minutes last Friday. <laughs> I might try and shorten it up, but I say that, but then I don't do it. So we'll see. I'm not much, I'm not very reliable when it comes to that. <laughs> so thank you so much uh, for joining me today and being part of this ministry. And may I announce something about giving and donating to support this ministry? 
Never feel like you ever have to. I'm not asking you to. Please just be blessed. All right, y'all. Take care.